you're tuned into Toby Talks, special edition, a conversation with President Barack Obama at the 15th Annual Diversity and Leadership Conference. Tonight's guest has a name that is synonymous with change. He's a true champion of diversity and inclusion, an exceptional leader that stands firm in his beliefs that all people, regardless of their background, deserves an equal chance. Barack Hussein Obama changed the world in 2008 when he became the first African-American president in our country's history. During his two terms in office, President Obama encouraged the importance of love, acceptance, and equality for all people around the world. Even beyond his presidency, his dedication remains evident as he continues to align himself with diversity, positive brands like the National Diversity Council. The 44th President of the United States is beloved by millions around the world, and tonight we have the fortunate opportunity to experience his greatness in person. Please join me in welcoming President Barack Obama. is how do we deal with uh, the fact that the world's gotten smaller and throughout the course of our lives, we are going to be interacting with, working with, uh, doing business with uh, people who don't necessarily look like us, think like us, uh, come from the same backgrounds, share the same faith. The working premise of America is that despite those differences, we can come together as a team and transcend those differences. 
Um, but let's face it, 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 uh, it is not always easy. A generation ago, certainly a hundred years ago, uh, most people spent all their time with people just like them. And the world was simpler, or at least seemed simpler. And uh, there were entire sectors of American society that were ignored or prohibited from fully participating in, in the American dream. Uh, more than half of America, women, were not given uh, their due in terms of leadership, the capacity to uh, fulfill the extraordinary gifts that they had uh, on various stages. And, and so uh, we have had to adapt to this new complexity and this new diversity and uh, the growing awareness that if we're going to succeed, we have to figure out how to, how to work together. And that has to happen at every level. It has to happen in our communities and in our neighborhoods and in our schools. It has to happen in our businesses and our military. And it has to happen in our politics. And, and some people get uncomfortable with it. Uh, and, and you get negative feedback from that. But it's coming. You know, if you look at the, let's say, the third grade class here in Texas, and you, you, you look at the makeup of that class, it does not look like it did 50 years ago. And it's not going back. It's, it's not reversing itself anytime soon. And so uh, efforts like yours and the people who are represented in this room who are, are, are trying to be intentional and strategic about how you can make diversity work for you rather than have it be an impediment to an effective organization that, that can achieve its mission, I think, is absolutely important. And as I said, this is not just uh, an issue in America. This is an issue in the Middle East. This is an issue in Europe right now. Um, it's an issue in Africa, even among people who look as if uh, they're the same, but there are tribal differences or religious differences that often divide. And, and one of the biggest challenges we are going to face is how do we uh, overcome these instincts uh, that says there's an us and a them and start thinking in terms of we. What can the everyday citizen do to contribute towards fostering an inclusive environment? Well, that, look, that, that's a big question. I, I, um, obviously, attitudes start at home. And how we teach our children to respect and embrace and listen uh, and appreciate people of other cultures or races or sexual orientations or uh, wh whatever those differences may be, um, you know, it, it's something that all of us as parents have to deal with. Now, 
The good news is, is that you've got a generation coming up that instinctively understands that we need to treat everybody with dignity and respect. Uh, you talk to Malia and Sasha, they don't understand uh, how you could actually ha have a different attitude towards somebody because they were Indian American. They'd be like, I'm sorry, what, huh? Well, you're treating that person differently or you've got a bias or, so, so they, I think, appreciate this instinctually. Um, but it's harder in organizations. Um, and, and, and the hidden biases and, and, and blind spots and prejudices that we all carry. It's not just um, white men that have these prejudices and biases, we all have them. And we carry them with us and we pass them on, unfortunately. Uh, and by the time you get into large organizations, uh, corporate, government, nonprofit sector, uh, it becomes more difficult to undo some of those early learnings if, if young people haven't been taught to appreciate people uh, for who they are. Um, and then those organizations have to take very practical steps to, to, to make a difference. So for, and I'll, I'll just give you a, a quick example. I, I should mention, by the way, my dear friend, former uh, mayor of this great city and uh, someone who served on my cabinet as trade representative, Ron Kirkus here. And, and when I was assembling a cabinet in the White House, the way it works is you just get flooded with a bunch of names. Uh, and so I've got, you have a whole transition team whose responsibility it is to figure out how are you going to fill out 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 jobs that, uh, that are going to be managing various departments and agencies in the federal government. And if you don't give a very specific instruction that you want uh, a diverse pool of candidates, if you don't get very specific about the fact that uh, I don't want only uh, African-American candidates and Latino candidates for the HUD job. Um, but I want, I want to see some in Treasury and the State Department. Um, and by the way, I mean, HUD's a really important agency. I'm, I'm just, but you know what I mean. If you, if, if you don't say very specifically, um, why don't we have more women in the national security space mm -hmm. as, as opposed to the education department, then um, in, invariably you will um, be missing outstanding candidates who could do great work. Um, so, so you have to push to broaden the pool. Um, another example, 
even when you go through that entire exercise. What you will discover is that because of lack of access, opportunity, and exposure in the past, mm -hmm. you may not have mm -hmm. the people who have the experience in certain agencies, departments, uh, or offices that would allow you immediately to elevate them at a high level. So we actually instituted something in the White House in which we were very intentional about mentoring up-and-comers, hotshots who might be in their 20s or 30s. They weren't yet ready to be a cabinet secretary or a deputy, but if you identify them now, encourage them, set up mentoring opportunities, the next administration down the road, they will have been promoted and have had the kinds of experiences where they are imminently qualified to move into those senior slots. So, so this is just something that you had to build into what we were doing on an ongoing basis. And in some cases, it requires some patience uh, because it doesn't happen right away. Uh, and it is important, and I'm saying now something that I think probably this room understands, but not everybody always does. Uh, you have to break down this idea that somehow uh, diversity and inclusion is in opposition to excellence rather than a motor and engine for excellence. As a leader, you know, you, you spoke about talent. What do you look for when you're identifying top talent? Well, the first thing I'm looking for is, is somebody who works. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I... I, I <laughs> let, let, let me just say, people, I'm pretty old-fashioned about like, working. Diversity is nice, but if y'all, if you ain't working, <laughs> see it. Right? No, I, look, I mean, <laughs> we, we um, you, you guys remember the, that movie, The Departed? Right, with Jack Nicholson and Matt Damon, about these gangsters in Boston. Anyway, um, Mark Wahlberg, at one point, he's this detective. They're doing some surveillance, and the guy who's doing the surveillance loses the guy they're surveilling. He's not on the screen anymore. And Wahlberg's furious. He runs up to the guy. He says, oh, what happened? Where is the guy you're supposed to be surveilling? He says, and, you know, the guy gets all defensive. He's, he's all like, whoa, who are you? And Wahlberg says, uh, I'm the guy doing my job. You must be the other guy. <laughs> so I used to say in the White House, yeah, don't be the other guy. Do your job. That's what I look for first and foremost in terms of talent. Do your job. And, and, uh, and by the way, that's something that I also say to young, underrepresented groups. It used to be, there was a saying, oh, you've got to work twice as hard. 
You may not have to work twice as hard, but you gotta work maybe a little harder <laughs> to, to prove, sometimes not so much to other people as to yourself, of everything that you are capable of doing. Um, so, so that's the first thing I look for. Look, the second thing I look for is, uh, is this somebody who knows how to work as part of a team and puts team and mission first? Uh, there are some organizations that do an outstanding job in, in this, by the way. Um, any company that, that isn't hiring veterans, you are making a gross mistake because the men and women who serve our country, they know how to think about mission first. Um, but I tend not to, I tend to be suspicious of folks who are thinking me first. Because most of the projects, at least we were working on, in the White House, what I was working on, uh, running for president, it, it's just big, hard work. And if, if we have a lot of uh, competition and drama and people buying for credit and not focused on the work, we will fail. And if you're in the White House and we fail, that could result in people being harmed, or folks not having health care, or there are big consequences to failure. So being focused on team uh, is something I, I prioritize. A, a corollary of doing your job and being focused on team is bringing problems to the surface early, along with a solution to the problem. I really like that. Um, and, and we've all had this experience. There are people who just, they, they're always fixing stuff, <laughs> right? I, you know, um, and, and I notice it doesn't matter so much age as it is just character and temperament. Uh, there, there are folks who, if you, if you say, get this done, it gets done. If uh, there's something that needs to be done, they will identify the problem and say, hey, this should be done, and by the way, here's how I think we should do it. Right? Somebody who has a bias for solutions, I find uh, extraordinarily important. Um, and then the last thing I, I look for are, are, do people have good core values? And, um, you know, people have asked me, what is, what is it that I'm most proud of um, from the presidency? And look, I'm very proud that we gave 20 million people health care that didn't have it. I'm very proud of the fact that we organized and mobilized the world uh, to, to start dealing with climate change. Because, you know, Texas, it's, it's going to be hotter down here. Uh, and, and we have to get on top of this. Um, but one of the things I'm really proud of is the fact that 
During my years in the White House, we didn't have scandals and folks going to jail. Some mercenary agenda. They weren't there because Lord knows they weren't there to make a lot of money. Um, I remember, uh, I guess my then deputy national security advisor, a guy named Tom Donnelly, who had been a, a big corporate lawyer, uh, worked hard, smart guy, really well organized. Uh, he told me the story of he, he was with his wife, I think, first month. In the White House, and his wife, who's also a brilliant professional, she, she was kind of going through the bills, and she said, "Oh, um, here I think this is uh, uh, this is the reimbursement for your travel expenses." And he said, uh, "No, baby, that's my paycheck." <laughs> so they, they had to make an adjustment <laughs> in <laughs> their expectations. Um, of the federal government. <laughs> but, but people came there for the right reasons. And, and, and whatever the organization is, um, you have to build a core culture and a set of values that starts at the top but can't end at the top, uh, in which treating other people with respect, being fair, uh, not hogging the limelight, but Spreading the love, you know, um, all those characteristics are important. Now, not everybody is going to operate perfectly because we're all flawed. And there were some people who were extraordinarily talented who they had their issues, and they might be brusque, or they might be a little shy, or um, they might, uh, you know talk too much in meetings. Um, but, but as long as everybody basically had good core values, those kinds of things can get worked out. Um, one thing I should point out that I did not mention, by the way, is people's degrees, you know, where they're, what school they went to. I cannot tell you and the reason this is on my mind is because you know, Sasha's about to go to college, Malia's already in college. And Michelle and I, we used to tell them, kids, like, we had no idea where the people who worked for us went to college. You know, we, 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 we didn't screen for, oh, well, they've got to be Ivy League or they've got to be summa cum laude or whatever. That was not our priority. Our priority was the things I just mentioned. And, and the reason I think that's important is that so much of our culture right now is built in 
using credentialism as a way of screening out and excluding talent and ignoring people's opportunities. And, you know, look, this is not an argument against outstanding schools and outstanding credentials. That's great. But it is to say, for example, uh, something Michelle and I are probably more familiar with law firms, uh, which have a dearth of minority and women partners relative to the general population and their clients. And you got an amen here, you got a, you got a amen corner. Um, and Michelle and I know from experience that the folks who did well at Harvard Law School where we went weren't necessarily the smartest or most gifted. They were people who were good at taking tests. They were folks who had had certain advantages oftentimes to get there. It, it, it wasn't dispositive of whether or not they were going to be an outstanding attorney. So um, I, I, I think for those of us to really look at who gets the job done, even if they don't necessarily have the exact credentials. I'll use one more example that Ron's familiar with from the White House, in part because of the, the, the tragedy of Katrina, not just the tragedy itself, but the subsequent failure of response. We were really focused on uh, who was going to head up FEMA, uh, Federal Emergency Management Agency, which is responsible for coordinating and making sure that people get help when they need it, immediately, effectively, supplementing what's done by first responders and, and local and state governments. And the guy we ended up hiring was one of the best hires I made guy named uh, Craig Fugate. And Craig is a big, burly guy. I think he was a gator. I think he went to the University of Florida because he always had this gator's blanket. So he got a gator here, too. Um, and he was low-key and didn't, you know, go after the limelight. And I think I saw him once in a suit because I think I invited him to a White House Christmas party or something. And he was just could tell he was just dying to get out of that thing. Um, and he had worked, by the way, for George Bush, uh, for Jeb Bush in Florida. So I had no idea what his party affiliation was. I didn't even know if he voted for me. But this guy loved disasters. I mean, when disasters happened, he was all like, oh, there's a tornado. Let me, and he'd be flying there, and he'd be on the ground, he'd be walking around, and, and, and stuff just was tight, so much so that it, as, as politicized as the environment was during my presidency, Republican governors and mayors, they couldn't say anything <laughs> about our disaster responses for eight years because of Republicans. The fact that he went to the University of Florida versus some, you know, other place was irrelevant. What was relevant was this extraordinary experience he had had, he had gained while he was in Florida, 
the fact that he didn't you know, look the, you know, the part uh, uh, you know, way somebody might want a federal, the head of a federal agency to, you know, look, that wasn't relevant, it was, it was performance. And, and, and that, I think, is what we constantly have to focus on. What qualities make you a great leader? Well, I don't know. <laughs> you have to ask Michelle that. Um, yeah, you know, that's, that, that, that's a setup, right? Because you're going to sound like a jerk or whatever you say. Um, here, here's, here's, I'll modify the question a little bit, and that is what, what, what qualities have I uh, learned that I think have been useful? Um, in leading an organization. And, and it bears on this issue of, of diversity uh, and inclusion. And that is, uh, I have learned that I like having people smarter than me in the room. And I, am, I think one talent I have developed I don't know if I always had it innately, is to, to, to figure out what is the core issue and then elicit from everybody around that table their perspectives so that on any decision I make, I know I'm getting a varied enough set of perspectives and we have looked at the problem from all kinds of angles, that by the time I make a decision, I feel confident that I'm basing it on the best possible information. And, 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 and this is where diversity and inclusion becomes so important. And by the way, sometimes we think in terms of diversity and inclusion only in terms of the groups that are excluded. And for reasons of equity and justice and history, that should be a primary focus. But there are other kinds of diversity that we have to focus on as well. Right? If, if you are in an organization where everybody thinks the same way politically, then you may miss something. If you are in an organization where even though it's racially diverse, everybody comes from the same socioeconomic background. You may be missing something. Uh, if, if, if you don't have anybody who is uh, rooted in uh, a church, and yet a large number of people who are your customers or your market, our church, then you're not gonna know how to talk to them. Uh, conversely, if everybody is going to church and you don't have any Muslims <laughs> who might wanna buy your products, that's a problem too. So, so there are all kinds of different diversity that we have to think about. But the point being though, we each come to the table with blind spots and if you have 
people around the table that cover each other's blind spots, then together you're going to get clear vision as to both what the problem is and how to solve it. And, and that is something that we, that's something that I think, uh, I think pretty consistently in the White House, uh, and, and Ron was in some of these meetings, I think, so he'll testify. It's not just the people who are on the inner ring of the table, because the way things were set up in the White House, or let's say the Situation Room. It's a pretty small room, big desk, You'd have the Secretary of State and Defense and CIA Director and Generals and all the mucky mucks are on the inside. And then on the outside, against the wall, were the staff of all these mucky mucks. So the, the, the mucky mucks are called principals and the folks on the outside are called staff uh, or deputies or what have you. A lot of times when we had really tough meetings, you know, I'd, I'd just sit there and I'd call on the principals and I'd ask them their views on this issue we were debating, um, which I can't tell you because it's top secret. It's, it's in the situation room. Um, but a lot of times at, at the end of the go-around, the principals' table, I'd point to somebody who's sitting against the wall in the back, and I'd say, you, what do you think? And they'd be terrified, right? <laughs> because I didn't necessarily know their name or what their position is. But I see them scribbling a lot of notes. And what I'm certain of is that they know more than their boss, because they're the one who did the memo to prepare the principal. <laughs> for the meeting. So, they, so they're all steeped in this stuff. They've got all kinds of opinions, but nobody's asked them really what they think, other than to prepare for the meeting. And, and, um, and some of the best insights I got, oftentimes, was from those latter discussions. Um, but that's also, that, that's another example of the cognitive bias we have. We, we think that there are certain people who, because of their position or authority, have the right answer. And one thing I think a good leader does is recognize you never know where the answer is coming from. It, just because somebody's junior or young, doesn't mean they may not have an insight that the old, stodgy people who've been doing things the same way all the time don't have. And, and I, I, I think maybe another way of putting this, and I've said, I've, I've said this before, I think a good leader is predisposed to empowering other people and recognizing other people's talents and lifting them up. And if you do that well, you're going to thrive because, first of all, those folks are going to be happy that they're being listened to and recognized and have meaningful input. Uh, second of all, you're going to get better answers, better ideas. Um, you'll sleep better at night because you're less likely to have missed something if you have a diverse set of views around the table. Um, 
And, and your job then is to synthesize and, you know, sort of referee arguments effectively so that at the end of the day, you may not arrive at a perfect consensus, but at least everybody in the room agrees, all right, this is what it is that we're trying to solve. This is, and this is how we're gonna solve it so that you get buy-in. Because you also still have execution. And people execute better if they feel as if they had some input into the plan. So you shattered the ultimate glass ceiling. What advice do you have for those who are butting their heads against the glass ceiling today? Well, look, um, most of what I'd say would, would sound cliche. Uh, the fact of the matter is that American society, like every society, is the product of history. The history in our country is that wealth and power uh, was accumulated and amassed uh, in part based on various hierarchies, racial hierarchies and gender hierarchies. And, and over time, uh, that reflected itself in our various institutions. It has changed. My own election as president was a testimony to that. Uh, the extraordinary achievements that you see by women and, and minorities and, and the LGBT community in various sectors uh, is a testimony to that. But it hasn't changed completely. It hasn't changed overnight. Um, and so your starting point is to recognize that just because you don't see somebody who looks like you in the position that you're interested in, uh, that's not because of you. That's not because there weren't people who looked like you who were qualified. It has to do with history. And you can make a decision about what to do with that. You, you, you can be bitter about it, and angry about it, and frustrated about it, all of which are perfectly legitimate human responses. You can demand that our political representatives work to pass laws that build on, rather than reverse, the progress that were made through things like Title VII. That's important. But at the end of the day, channeling that frustration, that anger to say, I'm gonna prove you wrong. I am going to outwork, out-hustle, uh, out-imagine, out-innovate, to achieve that goal, uh, is still the best recipe for individual success. Now, in terms of success on behalf of whatever group you represent or success on behalf of society at large, it can't stop with you just having gotten your brass ring. You then have to identify ways in which you can then give back and bring other people along and make that path a little bit easier for the next person. And, and I think that we're all a lot of studies have been done about the challenges that 
women or minorities on corporate boards or in management organizations oftentimes feel where having made it, they're now worried, well, I don't know, they bring another black guy in here. How's that gonna work? Are they gonna start getting nervous? Maybe I'll be the one to go. Uh, and getting, getting rid of that mentality, I think, is vitally important. Um, so, but from an organizational standpoint, for those of you who work for large organizations, I think you're also aware that uh, if you bring in one woman, That's not going to change culture. So, on the other hand, if suddenly you have two or three women who are partners of a law firm or are on a corporate board or are part of uh, the management team of your hospital or nonprofit, now suddenly they have some confidence because they don't feel as if they have to be the one at every meeting who's like, how come we don't have any women around? <laughs> or maybe that joke you Bob just told is highly inappropriate uh, and offensive, or <laughs> whatever it is that uh, needs to be corrected. And, uh, and, 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 you know, I found that in my cabinet, and in some of our agencies, uh, even with all my good intentions, there were times where, for example, uh, a, a culture of guys talking too much in cabinet meetings or senior meetings started to creep in. And we, I had these brilliant women, but sometimes they would not speak up. And finally, some of them came to me and said, you know, Ms. President, I, you do a great job of listening to us, but frankly, when we're in a lot of these meetings or when there are meetings that you're not at, we don't feel listened to. Or we'll give an idea, nobody will listen to us, and then Bob, <laughs> 10 minutes later, will say the same idea. And everybody would be like, wow, that's a great idea. Um, and so I actually you know, organized a dinner just with my, some of the senior women on my team um, just to talk about what steps we could take. The point I'm making, though, is that they might, if it, I'd only had one female cabinet member, that person might not have felt comfortable coming to me. They wouldn't want to seem like they were being whiny or complaining. When you had a group that empowered them, they empowered each other uh, to, uh, to be able to, to talk about these issues in a, in a serious way. Um, just to add to that, by the way, I'm sure some of you are familiar with these studies. Every study shows that an organization that has at least 
uh, not half, but close to half women in leadership positions outperforms organizations that don't. That's true for for-profit companies and the, their stock performance over the long term by every metrics. Um, so another example of how this idea that well, I don't know how we can do this because you know we we, we don't want to just engage in affirmative action or do this for show. No, no, performance shows women will get the job done. Uh, but you gotta have enough attention. What was your biggest challenge and how did you manage that? In life? In life. Lord, I don't know. <laughs> Des asking these big questions. <laughs> what was one of them? One of them. Um, talking Michelle into giving me a date. Uh, that, was a, that was a serious challenge. <laughs> she had this idea because, you know, she, we were working in the same office that it was inappropriate. That's all. I don't work for you. Then I offered to quit if it made her that uncomfortable. <laughs> so, anyway, eventually I was persistent. Um, so that was a challenge. Uh, look, I, I, I think we all we all have our challenges, uh, and we all have our blessings, and and I think that for me at least. Uh, learning to focus less on what I don't have, focus more on the incredible blessings I do have. Um, getting out of my own head and starting to think about how, what I can do for other people instead of what they can do for me. Um, I found allowed me to overcome most challenges. Not all, you know. Uh, it didn't help me have a 45-inch vertical and go to the NBA. <laughs> so I mean, part of, <laughs> part of confronting challenges is also recognizing there's some things you're not gonna be able to do. <laughs> I mean, it's not actually true you can be anything you wanna be because I couldn't go to the NBA. I wasn't able to do that. I might have been an adequate backup point guard on a Division II team. <laughs> I was going to be in the NBA. Um, but, but, I, but I think that what I tell my, my staff, I think what Michelle tells her staff, we've had the benefit of watching people who started with us in the campaign you know, back in 2007, 2008. Now, oh, got an alumni here. Um, now, you know, they're in their 30s, they're, they've got their own kids. They've, they've, uh, many of them have ascended to very important jobs uh, in, in, in 
various sectors. Um, so we've been able to watch the progression. What we find are, uh, it, what we find is that those people who have the characteristics I mentioned earlier, um, a buoyancy and resilience, a willingness to learn, a, a willingness to work as a team, to be helpful, to solve problems, to work hard. There is a shortage of people like that. And if you do that, you, you will succeed. Now, you may not succeed exactly the way you originally planned, which is why I, sometimes in the, um, about every six months, I would speak to the most recent class of White House interns. And you know, all these White House interns are you know, A-type personalities. I mean, they, they have, you know, they speak Latin, and they, you know, are, you know, the captain of the tennis team, and they, you know, scored perfect on their SATs, and they have pretty remarkable, talented young people. And so, invariably, since they wanted a White House internship, some of them are interested in politics. So they, Mr. President, what advice could you give, you know, somebody who's interested in running for office, public service? And one of the things I, I would say to them is, worry less about what you want to be and worry more about what you want to do. And what I meant by that was that sometimes in our society and how we train our young people, our kids, the idea is you want to be the president or you want to be the mayor or you want to be the CEO or you want to be rich or whatever that is. That's when oftentimes people get disappointed because there's only a certain number of people who can be LeBron James. There's only a certain number of people who are going to be president of the United States. But if you flip the question around and you say, what do you want to do? Well, I, I want to make sure that every kid in this country gets a good education. All right. You may not end up being the sector of education, but you may be a teacher who year after year is inspiring and motivating a whole new class of young people to succeed. And if you're really about doing, there are so many different ways to do in a way that gives you fulfillment, satisfaction, uh, is extraordinarily challenging, that you, you'll be fulfilled. Um, most of the people I know who are highly successful, they're just fascinated with something. You know? um, I, I happened to see Bill Gates today because he was being honored at uh, the Bush Library, I believe, for his contributions to, through the Gates Foundation to uh, dealing with diseases like HIV AIDS. And President Bush did an excellent job with a program called PEPFAR that at a critical moment helped to finance retroviral drugs in Africa. Um, 
Bill Gates didn't start off by saying, I want to be one of the richest men in the world. Bill Gates started off saying, computers are really cool. <laughs> and I want to figure out how to set up an operating system that is convenient and effective and can potentially be used by a wide variety of people. And the byproduct was an extraordinarily successful business. But that wasn't what made him successful. What made him successful was the passion that he had for the project itself. So. What, what are the keys? You don't need to What are the keys to a successful marriage? Oh. Wow. Some, some of the homespun wisdom is true. Um, you start off with respect. Right? You respect the other person. You know, the lust is nice. That's what oftentimes starts it off. But then kids come and you're tired, and, you know. And, Although when they leave, that's all right too. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but the thing that lasts is respect. And, and what I mean by that is uh, I believe my wife to be extraordinary. And even when I'm mad at her, or I disagree with her, there is never a point at which I do not believe what a miracle this person is. How, how, uh, how smart and funny and uh, honest, trustworthy and loyal you know, this person is. And, and so if, if, if you always have that as a fundamental um, and you act on that in terms of mutual respect, then you can get through the hard times. And there will be hard times. Michelle and I, we, we talk about this with our daughters. Marriage is work. It's not only work, but it is, it's a project. It is a joint endeavor. It is not uh, a fixed thing. It goes through waves of, and stages, and people are in different parts of their life. Um, those of you who have young children right now, right? a few of you raised your hands. Oh, you are a young child. <laughs> This young lady was like, raising her hands, like, yes, yeah, sweetie. Uh, I hope you don't have young children. Um, but those of you who have young children know, look, Michelle, I would say from the time Malia was born until Sasha was around four, hated me. 
And that's a span of about seven years. She just, I'd come home and she'd just look at me like, you are terrible. But part of it was just the pressure and the strain of two professionals, small children. Because I, we love our daughters, love them. More than anything in the world, they bring us greater joy than anything. But let's face it, when they're small sometimes, they get on your nerves, you're tired. <laughs> because they can't do a lot of stuff themselves, so you gotta do it for them all the time. And it was worse for Michelle than it was for me, because I was oftentimes traveling, which is the reason she hated me. Um, and, and so that's a phase, that's an example. And then there are gonna be times where the family's budgets are strained, and that's a phase. And there are gonna be times where just uh, one or the other person is, is at a, 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 a moment in life because of a tragedy or a professional setback or something where they get down. That's a different thing. What, what you can control is that sense of, even when Michelle hated me, she still thought, I respect him. He's a good man. He's a good father. He's somebody who I trust and wants to do the right thing. Um, so, um, you know, we, we, when we talk to our young staff as they start thinking about marriage and whatnot, what we always emphasize is that is, it is a joint project that you have to invest in and work in. Uh, and if you don't want to do the work, then you probably shouldn't be married. Um, because over time, it's, it's just not going to hold, hold together. Now we're going to do a round, uh, round table questions. And best barbecue, Kansas City or North Carolina? Neither. Texas. What about Texas? Right? I mean, you know. Wow. say? I'm like, Texas. There's some good barbecue in Texas. Okay. So, so, um, but I'm not going to start naming the best barbecue in Texas, because then I will cause controversy and lose votes. Although, I guess I'm not running for anything. So. I don't want to offend anybody. But Texas has some, I, I will say this, without naming the place, the best barbecue I've ever had was in Texas. I will say that. Best pizza, New York or Chicago? since either of y'all won anything. Baseball team. Well, I, 
I, I will say that the, the Astros have done it right. And, uh, and, and I, I know, you know, the, the, the folks who put that together, and, and Jim Crane, who owns the Astros, is an outstanding uh, business leader and, and, and friend. Um, and it's been a while since the White Sox won, but, um, but we're coming. <laughs> Last one. Most memorable country that you've ever visited? Most memorable country? Well, you know, there are a lot of remarkable places that you get the privilege of going to when you're president. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've been, I've, I've walked through the, you know, the, into the ancient crypts inside the pyramids. I've, I've been on the Great Wall of China, and I have, um, been in the ancient temples in Petra in Jordan. And there are remarkable places all around the world. I will say this, that um, at its best, the most remarkable place I've been is the place in which I was born and raised, and that's the United States of America. And, as long as we uh, aspire to our best selves, uh, we will not only pass that on to our children and grandchildren, but we'll continue to be a, a beacon of light for, uh, for other countries around the world. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast episode. There were so many gems dropped. But let's be honest, who got time to replay, pause, and write down all that information shared? Shoot, I know I don't. But don't worry, I got you. Download Toby Talks app on Google Play for nursing resources, definitions, and so much more that were mentioned on today's episode. Toby Talk app features show notes that timelines the conversation and lets you click directly to the resource or definition. And it even lets you bookmark the gem for later. Listen, we're too busy learning how to save lives or even saving lives as nurses to deal with a replay button. Toby Talk app is your one-stop shop for podcast episodes and show notes. For more on Toby Talks, like the blogs and videos, go to my website at www.tobytodge.com. And you know I love to hear from you guys, so feel free to slide into my DMs on IG or Facebook and hit me up through email. That's tobytalks at tobytodge.com. Again, that's tobytalks at tobytodge.com. Till next time, I'll be talking to you soon.